Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. We're going to continue in our adult Sunday school hour to do our study together through systematic theology. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in again this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who saves. We know that salvation is of the Lord, and you are a mighty Lord who is not weak or needy, but you are strong. We thank you that salvation has been planned, that it's been accomplished, and that your spirit, Lord, applies it to the lives of all who believe, all who trust in you. We thank you that you are a God that we can trust in, that you are trustworthy, faithful, and true. And we ask this morning for your help. We ask that you would help us to understand your word more clearly and that it would be transformative in our lives so that we might worship you rightly, so we might honor you with our whole lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, we've been going through the doctrine of soteriology. And soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. And in the doctrines of salvation, we've been talking through the acronym TULIP. We started out with the letter T, and the letter T was about total depravity. And when we talked about total depravity, it talked about all of us, all of what it means to be a human, to be mankind, was corrupted by sin. And all of us, all of mankind, everyone, was corrupted by sin at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And we talked about how the testimony of Scripture is that we are not only corrupted, but we are unable. There is an inability in us to choose God on our own. And what this shows us is that according to salvation, this is our need. So we would say salvation is needed. We need salvation because we are sinners. And then we talked about the you into it. We talked about unconditional election and how God in his grace chose before the foundation of the world those whom he would save not based on any goodness or choice of man, but simply by the amazing foreknowledge, or what we talked about was this foreloving choice of a sovereign God. And we would say that this is, the, this is salvation planned. And then we looked uh, with uh, Pastor J.D. walked us through the letter L, of limited atonement, or often referred to as particular redemption or definite atonement, which talked about Jesus' death on the cross and how it was both personal and it was powerful. That his substitutionary death accomplished salvation for the elect. And that this was both the intent and the extent of the finished atoning work of Christ at Calvary. And that we would, along with scripture, testify that Christ's work on the cross is both sufficient and efficient. Um, sufficient, sorry, let me correct that statement. Is sufficient for all and efficient only for those who believe for the elect we would say that this is salvation accomplished. So we're walking through this kind of timeline, and I wanted to put these side by side to understand that these doctrines are not just arbitrary. Uh, they're not just sections of scripture that we put in a fun little acronym name order, but we're talking about the need of salvation, that it was planned, and that it also was accomplished. And today, we're gonna be talking about irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is often referred to as effectual grace or effectual grace. Calling And what we would say about um, in relation to salvation with this doctrine is that this is salvation applied. This is salvation applied to 
the elect. So today, as we kind of dive in, that is going to be our subject heading. And I wanted to first start out with a couple verses, a couple verses to help us see what are we actually talking about in regards to the content of Scripture. John 6, 37 says, this is Jesus speaking, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, 44, Jesus continuing, just a couple verses down in the same chapter, saying, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As you kind of continue in your study through these doctrines of grace, we hope that this is encouraging you guys to dig into God's word to answer questions more and more about what God has accomplished through salvation. But some key words in regards to irresistible grace as you study through God's word is to say these key words of call, of draw, of granting or revealing. Those are key words when we study through this doctrine of irresistible grace. What is God doing to bring about salvation in the life of believers? So first, what I want to do, as we normally do, is talk through some distinctions, some differences between two views, which we've talked about a little bit in our study through soteriology, the history of the Arminian view versus the Calvinist view. First, let's talk through the Arminian view. To summarize in bullet points, they would say there's, there's really one calling for all, that faith comes first, meaning faith before regeneration, which we'll talk about today, and that it would ultimately depend on man. They would to be fair, they would say that there's something called prevenient grace that's given to all at some point during their life. But ultimately, for salvation to be applied, man has to do something. So here are some statements in regards to what the Arminian view proposes. They would say the Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. God does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation. But inasmuch as man is free... He can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until the sinner believes. There's that idea of faith preceding regeneration. Faith, which is considered man's contribution in this view, makes possible the new birth or regeneration. Thus, man's free will limits the Spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only successfully draw to Christ those who allow him, being God, to have his way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be and often is resisted and thwarted by man. And one of the issues that I think is raised in this view uh, practically speaking, is, is really what is the difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor? What's the difference? If, if it's really up to man to respond to God, we would have to say, what's the difference between you and an unsaved neighbor? Were you smarter? Were you wiser? Did, did something in you incline you maybe to understand these things and to choose Christ? What's the difference if everybody's on a level playing field? Or would most of us agree and say, when we reference our own testimony, God had to reveal himself to me. He revealed himself to me. Let's talk about, in comparison, the Calvinist view. The Calvinist view would propose that there are two separate callings described in Scripture. That the new birth or regeneration 
must proceed from a causal standpoint, regeneration. Oh, excuse me, regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration and new birth are synonymous terms. And that ultimately depends on God. God must act. So let's walk through some statements in regards to this view of irresistible grace. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a personal inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can and often is rejected. However, the internal call, which is made only to the elect by God, cannot be rejected and always results in conversion. By means of this inward call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. God is not limited, and his work of applying salvation by man's will, or, oh, excuse me, God is not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, and to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation of those whom it is extended. What we need to clarify in this title of Irresistible Grace, like we talked about with Limited Atonement, there can be some misconceptions laid upon a title. We need to remember that God the Father planned salvation, God the Son accomplished salvation, and God the Spirit applies salvation. We need to recognize that in this discussion of that third tier, the application of salvation, no one is being dragged against their will to heaven, and no one is getting the door slammed in their face and begging to get into heaven. We would agree that that sounds very wrong, and rightfully so. Romans 10:11 says, "For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame." But the condition constantly expressed in scripture and even in that verse is whoever believes whoever believes we are all in total rebellion against god not capable of saving belief or saving faith in and of ourselves and our will is in bondage to sin it is not in a neutral state when god grants the new birth you are made alive and given new desires that you act on also we want to clarify that this does not mean that God's grace cannot ever be resisted. But rather than, God's saving grace cannot ultimately be resisted. And what we're trying to clarify here is not that, um, that there's some strong-arm view of God's just doing something against man's will. But there has to be a new birth that gives you new desires. And that's something we can't do in and of ourselves. Somebody else has to do it, and God has to do that in us. So what we're not saying is that God believes for us, which we'll talk about, or God repents for us, but rather he gives us new desires, and not, we're not um, under coercion or manipulation. What is being taught is that God, God's special saving grace has a capacity to overcome our sinful rebellion exactly when God sees fit to do so. Here's a definition of irresistible grace or efficacious grace. The Holy Spirit never fails to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to Christ. He inevitably applies salvation to every sinner whom he intends to save, and it is his intention to save all the elect. 
But ultimately this morning, our goal is not to submit to systems or explanations, but we want to submit to Scripture. We want to submit to God's Word. So let's look together at some verses that use these terms so that we can see what God has said. Romans eight twenty nine through 30 is a verse that often is referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Listen to Paul as he writes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And he continues to explain what uh, those who God foreknew and predestined, what happens. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. That's one of our key words in this study. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What we see here is that there's none lost in each of these buckets. He's saying, he's referencing the previous statement, saying those who are this are now this. Those who are this are now this. And there's a progression, and there's none that's lost in between. So he's saying, if you are called, you are also justified. If you are justified, you are also glorified. And this speaks to God's faithfulness. We see Paul mentioning this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, God is faithful. And Paul wants to explain, what do I mean? What is the encouraging statement here about God's character that he is faithful? And he says, by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's interesting that the proof Paul uses for God's faithfulness is that they were called to salvation. They were called to salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, And you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, referencing Exodus here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him being God, who called you. And what is the effect of this calling? He says, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's an effect to God's calling in the life of the elect. And the effect is that they are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see that Peter also preached this way in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. He says, for the promise, referring to salvation, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And he says, everyone. So how does Peter define this everyone? He says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's who the promise is for, is everyone who God calls to himself. These verses in scripture regarding God's call to salvation indicate no sort of powerlessness or it's just kind of like a, an invitation you get in the mail, an RSVP if you want. It's more of a powerful call. Some would even uh, refer to it as this calling of a kind of summons of the king of the universe. And it has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. Oftentimes theologians will refer to um, John chapter 11. And they refer to when Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead. And he has them open the tomb. And they're like, he's dead. He's going to stink. It's way past. Um, and Jesus calls out and says, Lazarus, come out. And as he calls Lazarus to come out, and he's not commanding someone who's currently alive to do something and they just need to obey. But rather he's calling out Lazarus who is dead. And in his command of call, he's bringing new life to Lazarus to be able to obey. He's his calling out of Lazarus both is the command and the ability that raised Lazarus from the dead to be able to obey. 
And we see Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. And this is referring to God in the Old Testament in Genesis. When God said, Let there be light, and there was light. That's the power of God's word, his command. This God who created things out of nothing, he says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the powerful call of God. It's not something that is optional. When God calls, it is effective. But how does this effectual and what we would call an internal call of God happen? What is scripture, how does scripture describe this internal call? Well, scripture actually says that it is packaged in the gospel, we would say. This would be what we would refer to as the general call or the call of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14, Paul writes, To this, referring to salvation, he called you. How did he do this? How did he call you? He says, through our gospel. God's call is through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul explains this really well in Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, starting in verse 12, he writes, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now this call we need to specify is those who call on him, referring to man believing in God. He says, for everyone who calls, this is going upward, on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from Joel chapter 2. And then he continues in verse 14 saying, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And then he quotes from Isaiah. says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who, are pre who preach the good news. And then in verse 16, Paul continues, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. That's an interesting statement. That seems different than the verses we just looked at, where God's call is effective and powerful and transformative. Whereas here he's saying, Not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, he quotes again from Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And that's showing again, what we've been talking and emphasizing through is that there's a belief problem in the heart of man. And then he concludes in 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul continues to summarize this statement at the beginning of his letter. Sorry, he doesn't continue. I guess he starts with the seed of it. In Romans 1.16, familiar verse, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, he says, who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, showing this idea that there's no distinction in the audience of the gospel presentation. The gospel is to be presented to everyone. Paul explains, or uh, he explained it in Romans chapter 10. He summarizes it in Romans 1. And we would say Paul's example even testifies to this in the preaching of the gospel. Paul preached at the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So we need to understand there's, there's what seems to us as we look through these verses probably um, some sort of dynamic that's, that's really 
opposite in nature, right? We see this sort of effectiveness and we see this ineffectiveness. How do we reconcile these things? And if you study through it, there's actually a really clean and easy way to draw this comparison. Let's look first in, in summarizing the general call. The general call is something that man does. Man preaches and proclaims, is sent to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we saw that it was universal. This general call is meant to be preached and proclaimed to all. We also saw that it was external, meaning it's not when, when man's preaching, I can't actually pinpoint and do anything internally in the heart of the audience, but it's for hearing, it's for, for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we saw that it was resistible. Paul explained that even in Romans chapter 10, saying they did not obey the gospel call. Secondly, we would say, how is this different from the effectual call we looked at? The effectual call is something that God was described as doing, not man. We would say also that it was described as particular. It's only for those who believe. It's also only for God's elect. We would say that it's an internal call, something that God isn't externally, audibly doing as much as an internal heart change that transforms and brings about the response it commands. And we would say that when God's call happens, it is irresistible. That's what we saw in our verses this morning. We saw that it was something that God accomplishes through the powerful call of the gospel by his Holy Spirit. And as I was preparing this slide, it was helpful for me to kind of think through, how do these um, categories compare? How do we summarize them? We would say, um, at the top, we could say it's the author of, this, of the call. We would say there's an audience to the call. We would say there's um, an accessibility or an access to the call, and that there's an outcome And what was helpful for me in understanding the differences described in these calls in Scripture is that it's all contingent upon what I would call the author or the origin or starting point of these calls. The author actually is how we conclude the rest of these categories. If you think about it, man is commanded to preach to all. We don't know who God's elect are, and we're commanded to be a part of this gospel ministry to proclaim the good news to all. And we don't have access to man's heart. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And so we preach externally to tell people of the good news as we're commanded to. And it's natural that if man is the one doing the work, yes, people can resist the message that you share with them about the good news of Jesus Christ. But in contrast to that, if God is doing the work in the heart of his elect, it is particular what he is doing. It's internal. He's not just doing something external. He's changing their heart And it is irresistible because God is the source of this call. He is the one that is affecting the work and the change. One verse that would be really helpful to look at, if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing to a church that is really screwed up, really messed up. They've got lots of sin problems and they're getting really everything wrong. (laughs) They needed a lot of counsel, that's why it's one of the longer epistles. And he writes them twice, actually four times, only two we have canonized in scripture and that God preserved for us. But in chapter one, he opens up explaining from the the outbreak or the starting point, he wants them to know the beauty of God's salvation. First Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse 18, Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Of God. Interesting, he says this message, the gospel message, is folly or foolishness to those that are perishing. 
but for those that are being saved, it is the power of God. It seems to have a, a different result for different audiences. And in 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, this is God's wisdom displayed in how he has structured salvation here. The world did not know God through wisdom. It's not an intellectual ascent. You're not, well, I was a little smarter than my neighbor, and that's why I got saved. We're all in a neutral pot, but I really figured it out. It actually says it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What we preach is foolishness to those who are unable, unable in themselves to save themselves. They can't respond in themselves. It's foolishness to them. But God, through the proclamation, this general external call of the gospel, is the one who is working to save those who believe. He continues in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But what we do, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But, he's saying that's, that's supposed to represent everybody, Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. In tw- verse 24 he says, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles. That is what Christ crucified means here. He says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is an audience that's compared to um, every, normal human race. Jews and Gentiles, stumbling block, folly. But he says, but those who are called of that same group, resembling all of the world, those who are called in that group, It's a different result. It's not foolishness. It's not something that seems um, to be resisted, but it's actually something that is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And if you um, look down further in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5, he concludes, So that the reason God structured his salvation this way is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is why the gospel is structured this way. And it's really a beautiful thing to recognize. God has designed and called his people to proclaim his glories, not because we're the one accomplishing something, but we get to participate in what he's accomplishing. And it glorifies him because he's the one that does the work from start to finish. This effectual call that we see laid out in scripture is not all God does in applying salvation. We also see in scripture this idea of regeneration. Grudem accurately explains the difference between an effectual call, or this irresistible grace we're speaking of, and regeneration. When he says, effective calling is God speaking powerfully to us, and regeneration is God working powerfully in us to make us alive. That's the distinction here, but both are what we're talking about in regards to irresistible grace. There's a calling that God does, and there's a quickening that God does to make us alive in regeneration. The example um, of the gospel message in Scripture is never stated, be born again and you will be saved. We never see in Scripture, in the gospels or any of the epistles, anywhere in Scripture, where we're commanded, be born again and then you will be saved. Rather, what the scripture says is, believe in Jesus Christ, 
and you will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. So what we're looking at here is how can we be born again? We have no ability in ourselves to believe in Jesus Christ. We need to be made alive. And that's not something that we can do on our own. And we see this testified to in Scripture. John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 13, he writes, Those who were born not of blood, meaning it wasn't a bloodline thing, you weren't born into it just because you're a Jew, or not of the will of the flesh, that means nothing that man can do on their own to be saved. Thirdly, he says, not of the will of man. That means there's no man-made system where you can earn your way. It's not a man-made religion, but he says, rather, it's but of God in John chapter 1.13. That's how you were born. When you are given a new birth, it's of God. He's the only one active and at work. John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This new birth described in Scripture, we often conflate with salvation, but we need to understand that there's something being done here that is by God alone. There's no conditions placed with this. Jesus is just saying, He's saying, how do I enter the kingdom? That's what Nicodemus asks. And Jesus is saying, it's something that has to be born in you. God has to make you new. He does the work, and he is the only one that does it. You can't do it yourself. Regeneration, then, we would say, is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to his elect. This, we would say, theological term is, um, at the header of the slide, this is a monergistic work of God the Spirit in the lives of sinners. And what we mean by monergistic is, if you broke down the word, it really just means one energy, or you could say one working. And this is really a big dividing line in regards to theological discussion. When people say, do you think salvation, and specifically this work of regeneration that God does in the life of his Uh, elect is that something that man cooperates with that we participate in this making alive or is it something that god does solely on his own in the lives of those who will believe and we would say with scripture that this is a work of god it's not of anything in us not of blood not of our will and not of the plans of man and we see this testified also in the old testament ezekiel 36 god writes and i will Give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When it comes to this idea of God's um, effectual irresistible grace. Scripture is clearly testifying that God is doing the work. He will not be thwarted. He is causing and doing what he said he will do, what he planned to do and what he accomplished to do. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But we also want to emphasize in regards to regeneration that this regeneration is total. Total. That was a fun way to say that. Total. We would say it's not just 
the spirit that's made alive, but there's a total new person. And Paul clearly says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is the result if you're in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So we wouldn't say that there's some sort of partial regeneration that happens. Scripture speaks to when God makes you alive, that you are made new. Made completely new. Okay, so we also want to talk about regeneration as it relates to faith. How does regeneration and faith relate? At the beginning we said there seems to be a divide here in regards to different systems. What does scripture say? Does faith precede regeneration or does regeneration rather precede faith? And to clarify, as we've talked about this before, we've talked about regeneration in our study through pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and we've mentioned it several times throughout this study, uh, but this is the point again of application of how salvation is applied to God's people. This is the point where that's actually happening, so to speak. This is, this is the point we're zooming in on. And what we would say is when we're talking about preceding or coming before, we're not speaking about a, a time change. That's a lot of times how we think of things. We think of things in regards to order and a timeline. What we would rather say is there's a causality, and we've used this analogy before, but it's the best analogy, and it really is right in alignment with Scripture. When we see the sinfulness of man, it's described as a blindness, right? And so what we would say is that when, when God removes our blindness, which is our sinfulness, that's the regeneration part. That is removed. The light of faith enters our eyes. So we would say from a causal standpoint, the barrier has to be moved so that light can come in, this, this belief and trust in Christ. But from a time standpoint, we would say it's snap of a finger. It's, it's the same thing. It's, it's happening at the same moment because doing this does this. It all happens at the same time. When you're healed, you can see. That's why in Scripture all these healings of Christ are supposed to depict that, right? When the blind man sees right away, there's instant change. When, when the lame man walks, he's, he's leaping, realizing, I don't have to learn to walk. There's this sort of instant change that has happened in their lives. And that's what's going on when we're talking about faith and regeneration, or rather regeneration preceding faith. So let's talk through some verses. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There seems to be this condition to say, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you have to first be born again. This is the first step. You must be born again. John chapter 6, 44. We read this verse earlier. Jesus says, no one can come. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, this is one of the words we kind of referenced at the beginning. This drawing of God. And some would say, yeah, we believe in the drawing of God. We just think God draws everybody. I think there's this universal drawing that God does. And that way it's, it's, it's equal and fair and gives everybody this opportunity to be saved. But what he says right after this, and he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. That would seem to contradict this verse to say, anyone the Father draws will be raised up on the last day. And if God draws everyone, wouldn't that mean that everyone is raised on the last day? And again, we end at universalism, which is clearly a heresy and not taught in Scripture. 
So we can't conclude that drawing happens to everybody. There seems to be this unique, particular drawing that God does, and that's what God's work is, and that's what has to start. That's the first domino that has to fall. John chapter 6, verses 64 and 65, and I would encourage you after our study here today to go through and read John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus is um, giving these these conditions really of saying you have to be born again. You have, the Father has to draw you. You cannot come. You need God to work. And he actually later says in these verses in 64 and 65, but there are some of you who do not believe. And there's this parenthetical statement that John writes. This, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. It's interesting. He's bringing up the idea of Judas here. Judas is the one who specifically is pointing out that would not believe and would betray Jesus and that Jesus knew this. And then he says in 65, and he said, this is why I told you, this is why I told you earlier, just 20 verses before, that no one can come to me unless it is, then he says, granted, unless it is granted him by the Father. God is the first to work and the work of God first is to be born again. Acts 16, 14. Here we see um, a record of the church at Philippi. Paul is traveling on his missionary journey, and he bumps into Lydia in the city. Uh, she comes from the city of Thyatira, but um, they, they bump into her at Philippi, and she's a seller of purple goods and even described as a worshiper of God. And it, the, the verse here in 14 actually says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's interesting that Luke records, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, this way. He says, the Lord is the one that opened her heart to pay attention. That seems to be this internal call, this work of God that has to happen in the hearts of those who will believe. And we remember from our study of total depravity, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, anything that's of the flesh brings flesh. Anything of the Spirit brings spirit. There's, they're contrary to one another. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands and none who seeks after God. The solution is only that God makes us alive. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christ, by grace you have been saved. We often confuse the results of regeneration with the act of regeneration. And we ought not get this confused. First John uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he's laying out clearly here a conditional statement. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He's saying, this is the fruit of Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has been already born of God. Belief is a fruit of the regeneration work that God does by himself. Scripture, scripture shows that faith as the necessary result of the new birth, which is why we conclude that God's work alone brings about new life and faith in all of those whom he saves. But it's important for us to guard also against this potential misunderstanding here. God sovereignly awakens the sinner in regeneration so that he, the sinner himself, being born again, in his personal consciousness and according to his renewed nature necessarily turns from sin and trusts in Christ. 
And we must understand that God does not, and we would not want to say this, of course, because Scripture does not say this. We wouldn't say that God repents from sin. God doesn't believe in Christ for the believer, but rather these are described as gifts. Scripture said in 2 Timothy 2, God grants repentance, or in Philippians 1, that God grants faith. Man must respond, but it's the only response that comes from being born again. When you are made alive to see who Christ is and you desire and see him as a treasure that has redeemed you, that is the only response that comes. So what are some conclusions we can draw from our study through irresistible grace? I think first uh, we ought to look at um, our personal experience. I'd like to speak to experience here, and Scripture actually does this as well. If you continued in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. And he says what we've kind of been mentioning. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And why is this? And because of him, he says, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We can boast in the Lord because he is the one that does the work. And when you think about your own testimony and what God did in your life to bring you to salvation, I want you to fast forward to the end of our days when you're standing before the king of glory. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven? Will you at that point really be confidently standing on your own feet saying, you know what, thank you for putting me in a neutral state. I'm so glad I did my part. I don't, I don't think that's what we would say. I hope that's not what you would say. Because the testimony of scripture is the only right response is, by your grace alone. It's by your grace alone. Secondly, I want to bring up, how do we respond to others? We ought to proclaim to others. Because this good news of the gospel is commanded as a message through us to be shared with all we ought to proclaim because that is what God is working through. Through his, this outward call, he is executing his inward call. So we ought to have no fear or pressure, but we'd rather be filled with pleasure in Christ so that we can call people confidently to repent, knowing God will save anyone who believes in him. That's the promise of the gospel. And lastly, we ought to pray. We ought to pray to God. Think about it. If God is not the one that effectively saves people, then why would we pray to God to save people? If really it's up to people and God has done everything he can, he's extended himself, he's just waiting for them to have that little bit of energy just to reach up and grab him. God's already done everything he can. At that point, there's no need to pray. Because God can't do anymore. He's dancing around man's will, hoping that some fish pop out of the water. Rather, we would say we can pray confidently to God, and we believe that prayer is God's ordained means by which he is glorified to powerfully and effectively bring about his sovereign will. So we ought to pray, God, will you save? Please save sinners for your glory. That's in alignment with his will, and he delights to answer those prayers accordance with his will. We're going to continue in our study next week. We're going to be um, in part seven of our teaching sections, and we're going to be on the final part of Tulip. We're going to be talking about the perseverance 
of the saints. And hopefully our prayer is that you're continuing to study through God's word to get a greater grasp of God's sovereign grace toward sinners. And if you have questions from this study, please do email this to us. After Perseverance, we're planning to do another Q&A as we kind of come toward the end of our study to make sure we're trying to work through this biblically and together as a family as we work through these questions. And there's some resources here uh, that you can continue your personal study through as well. And we will be back here in 15 minutes for our worship service. You're dismissed.